Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. The Premier League All Access podcast is proud to be brought to you by Ladbrokes. Stay ahead of all the big games in the best league in the world, the Premier League. With the latest odds, form guides, expert opinions and more. The fans are the players at Ladbrokes. Are you in? Let's go. Play at ladbrokes.com, 18 plus, begambleaware.org. T's and C's apply. Welcome to Upfront with Brian Dean and me, Sam Matterface, on Talk Sport. This is the show that takes you into the world of the number nine as we find out what it takes to be a top flight striker. We'll discuss what it's like to play abroad the pressures of being a centre-forward, and how it felt to score the first ever goal in the Premier League. Cork waiting on the edge of the six-yard area, and Dean scores! Four minutes and 36 seconds when the ball went into the net. You're listening to Upfront with Brian Dean and me, Sam Matterface, on TalkSport. Despite over 650 league appearances and nearly 200 league goals, and clubs ranging from Sheffield United to Leeds United, Leicester, West Ham and... Perth glory, international honours with England, three caps. Would it be fair to say that my guest today hasn't got talked about enough as a top number nine? That's an oversight, because not only do his statistics at Sheffield United in particular hit the marks of excellence, he was a man of firsts. Brian Dean scored the first goal at the King Power Stadium, or the Walker Stadium as it was known, and he scored the first ever goal in the Premier League. Brian Dean, hello, how are you? I'm good, thanks. Yeah, very good. Manchester United opening day of the 1992-93 season. How often do people discuss that goal with you? Quite often, which is nice. Um, you know, it's such a long time ago, but, you know, it just seems so fresh still because obviously we, we start the season every August and it's the first question everybody thinks about, you know, who scored the first goal and so on. So it's always nice to revisit that, um, that sunny afternoon in Sheffield. Uh, We will get to that goal in more detail very soon indeed. But I wanted to get a flavour, first of all, for those who don't have as long a memory as me, of what sort of centre forward you were. What sort of number nine was Brian Dean? I think my main attributes were that I was was quite a tall striker, quick, you know, from a young age. I learned to use both feet. It was something that my brother drilled into me from sort of like the age of about 10 to use both feet. So I was pretty comfortable on both sides. And uh, obviously because of my height, I was pretty decent in the air. Once I, once I learned that the movements in the box, you know, it, it became a very good weapon, especially towards the end of my career when I wasn't as mobile um I think one of the things about me was I was never over reliant on my heading ability. I was I was always somebody who liked to get on the shoulder of players and and run and try and get an open uh, space for a shot on either side. You were and you are very tall. You're big. Yep. You're strong. You're physical. What advantages do you think that gave you? 
Quite a few, really, because uh, there's a number of aspects to the game that people don't really understand um, when you're playing at a professional level. There's the psychology of, of, of football. I think that was another thing that I learned. You know, sometimes when you're lining up in a tunnel or so on, some, and you're playing against a centre-back or... You, you know, it can be quite intimidating. I think I've been on the other side of the coin when I was a young kid coming into football. And I always used to be, let's say when I was at Doncaster, I was on the bench. I used to look on the pitch. I used to see the centre house. I think, wow, he's massive. And then I'd get on the pitch and I was just as big. But it was only when I started to grow into my body, maybe around 20, 21, that I kind of realised that it can give you a, a psychological advantage you know, it, it obviously helps you when, when you're talking about if you can go toe-to-toe with somebody physically, it then becomes a, a battle of the mind. Um, but like I said, I, I had other attributes. Um, I think I was pretty quick. I, I could play down the wings either side. Good engine, you know, which I think is very important. For me, one of the most important attributes of a centre-forward is being mobile and being able to come short, but also be able to go over the top or down the sides of people. Um, so, I, so I was quite gifted from that point of view, if I must say myself. You know, if I could say what attributes would you like as a centre-forward, I think I'd be quite happy with what I was blessed with. In terms of maximising those qualities, what did you yeah. what did you prefer to do? Did you did you prefer the fight? Did you prefer the sort of challenge of outpacing someone and getting in behind or going down the sides of the pitch? Was there something that you you know if you if you had the choice, what was the what was the bit you enjoyed the most? I enjoyed out footballing people. It was simple. I think the physical side of things. I always used to say was there. I mean, I remember there was a couple of times where I played against people and. The first thing that a centre-half does sometimes is come down the back of you. And I, I gave a couple of warnings. I said, look, we can go either way if you want. Because it wasn't really my choice. I preferred to think about scoring goals and, and getting on the end of things. Who was so the worst for doing that to you? If you're old enough, you'll know that Steve Bald had a, a ridiculous <laughs> reputation for going down the back of people. Um, you know, he was a great defender. And he was, I mean, if you flip it, I mean, he was, he was one of those that I never really fully enjoyed playing against because you know if you've got a physical advantage over somebody it's great and you can relax into the game but we were roughly the same size and build you know and obviously you had Tony Adams next to him and sometimes Martin Keown as well so that side of it you had to try and adapt to your game generally I, I just preferred to play football I preferred to do everything uh, legally um, and I just wanted to use my attributes to, to see how they could, how I could impose myself on the game. As you've got older, you've been a manager, a team owner. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I'm sure you're going to tell me now that it's all about the team and it's all about the collective. But were you one of the it must be me who scores brigade when you were playing or were you always happy to sacrifice yourself no. for the team? No, I um. You know, if you're a centre forward and you're scoring goals, you want to be the one who's scoring. And and I was fortunate enough at Sheffield United that they gave me that platform. You know, the 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 way how the game was set up for us was ideal for me in that, you know, there was plenty of things for me to run on to. They would always look for me as the first um you know, people called it long ball, but for me, if you've got if you if you if your advantages are up front, why are you gonna why aren't you going to use that? And and that's what we did. So um, that was something that I kind of enjoyed, really. 
is it important? Of course it's important. And I'll tell you why. Because there were times, even if you look back, if I look back even just as far back as the beginning of the Premier League, I guarantee you now every centre-forward, whether it's Alan Shearer, Ian Wright, Teddy Sheringham, Paul Merson, David Hurst, everybody would be looking and thinking, who scored? And, and, and I'll be honest with you. Who's top of the charts today? Yeah, exactly. And, and I'll be honest with you. If, if I'd scored a couple of goals and somebody else hadn't scored, then that would make me feel even better. So, and, I, and and that's what, but that's what, but we're talking about elite level players who, who want to be the best. And mm. that's how we were. And I'm sure Alan Shearer, if you speak, speak to him, you know, okay, some people might say, well, I wasn't bothered about anybody else, but of course you are, you know, no, it's, it's just your competitive spirit. Let's warm up with a couple of quick fire questions and get a, a proper sense of who Brian Dean really is. Um, and let's we'll avoid the Manchester United goal because we're going to come back to that in detail in the in the second part. But um, what's your favourite goal? Uh, I get asked this, uh, you know, in in terms of different clubs and so on. My favourite goal at Leeds was the goal that I scored against Spurs. Here's Brian Dean midway inside his own half. He begins the break. Shuffles it to the left-hand side of the park. Dean still going strong. Oh, he's gone for goal! That is magnificent. Strength, power, finesse. The lot. That got us into UEFA Cup as it was then. I picked up the ball halfway in our own half and I ran three-quarters of the length of the pitch and, and shot past Ian Walker last game of the season. If I'm talking about uh, down at Sheffield United, it's probably the goal I scored from 40 yards against Grobbelar. Oh, Grobbelar's come on walkabouts. He's dispossessed. This will be spectacular if it goes in. Oh, look at that. 45 yards from Brian Dean. What was Grobbelar thinking about? There was loads of goals. I, I, look, I, I scored different types of goals, and I think that's the other thing. I wasn't somebody who just sat and waited in the box, you know, pulled off to the far post and, and nodded it down or nodded it back across. You know, my game was down the left, it was down the right. You know, that was how it was in those days. As a centre-forward, you were the one who was supposed to score the goals for the for the team. So there was a certain type of striker. Right, You look at Ian Wright, he was quick. Um, Les Ferdinand, strong, quick. Alan Shearer, all-round game, fantastic. The only one who was a little bit different, I think, was Teddy Sheringham, who was so clever in that he, you know, his movement was fantastic. So um, he, he was perhaps the one who was a little bit different to everybody else at the time. Okay, so another couple of quick questions for you. Um, sure. Who's your favourite strike partner? That's a difficult one because... I have to say Tony Agana, but I also have to give a mention to Tony Yeboah, who was um, an unbelievable striker, and also Alan Boxic, who perhaps he was as complete a striker as you could probably get. Here's Boxic, claiming possession in his own half. Check to see who was near him, and the answer was nobody. Still Boxic, chips. Oh, that's fantastic! A brilliant, brilliant goal from the Croatian. I told my brother about Alan Boxic and, and my brother said, oh, listen, you just need to make sure that you're in the team with him. You know, he was he was a fantastic player. Um, and as, as it goes, you know, centre forwards go, you never want to admit that somebody's perhaps a little more equipped than you at the time. And But I think that's where he was. He, he was a world-class striker at that time. And, you know, I was past the point where I was going to improve anymore. I was going to improve in my mind 
uh, perhaps a lot more than I was going to in my mobility and, and so on. Who is your childhood hero? Childhood hero, I would have to say, was Cyril Regis. Regis taking it well on the chest and a lovely piece of control by Regis. Oh, and what a great shot! For obvious reasons, it comes Guy up a lot, you know, yeah. you know, talking to strikers. It's an amazing reverence in which he is held. Yeah, you could put Cyril into the game nowadays, and he'd be worth 70, 80 million. He was that good, and he was so different. I mean, if you look at some of the clips that they've got, and you see him, his physical presence on the pitch, where he's got quads, he's got hamstring bulge. Everybody else was. It was like he was the only one in the gym. Cork waiting on the edge of the six-yard area. And Dean scores! Four minutes and 36 seconds when the ball went into the net. Let's talk about that goal. The goal against Manchester United on the opening day of the 1992-3 season. I think I've probably watched it about ten times in the last 12 hours. Um, What do you remember of it? One thing I do remember was that I was a centre-forward who liked to start the season and score a goal early because if you look at stats and they were basic in those times, you'd say, are you a one-in-two, are you a one-in-three footballer or, you know, are you going to score one goal every other game? You know, you had to get off to a good start and I'd, Luckily for me, at Sheffield United, I managed to score at the, on the opening day of the season in all my seasons from joining them. So I just approached it in exactly the same way. Um, but I, I thought, look, I need to get off. This is a new league. We started the game against Manchester United and nobody fancied us, obviously. But the one thing that we had at the time was team spirit uh, and, a, and a belief in our ability. And we believed that playing the better teams early season was good because they wouldn't have time to ca- to, to get into their stride. And that proved to be the case. Especially we, after four uh, minutes and 36 seconds. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> yeah absolutely, Sam. I mean, we, we'd worked on set pieces because we knew we weren't going to have as much of the ball, perhaps, as Manchester United. So we had to make every moment count. And, and we worked on the set pieces, on the throw-ins. Alan Cork, who is very good in his movement and always was all the way through his career started off the pitch for his run. Carl Bradshaw had a long throw and it caused that kind of uncertainty. In the end, it was Dennis Irwin who flicked it on and I managed to get between Gary Pallister, uh, Peter Schmeichel and Steve Bruce, basically a diving header. Well, I'd like to call it a diving header. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds better. It, was, it, 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 wasn't, it wasn't the cleanest, was it? I mean, it was, it was, it was a good... It didn't header. come off my shoulder. Of course no, no. it was clean. No, no, but what I mean is it wasn't sort of like... It was one of those where, to me, it looked like... And, and again, I've, I've only been watching it again in the last few hours. And I was, I was looking at it, I was thinking... Peter Schmeichel, one of the world's best goalkeepers, has yeah. caused himself so much grief here because he's come running towards the ball and he's got nowhere near it. Brucey yeah. looked completely disorientated by the long throw. And you've yeah. sort of just stolen in and thought, do you know what, I'm going to capitalise here. And you were just quicker and <coughs> sharper and a little bit more um, agile than, than Gary Pallister. And you got there and you looped it in and that was it. I started my run from behind Gary Pallister, yeah. so they had no idea did, where did you, I was. Did, did you know that this sort of this was coming? Did you know that what the, the chaos that was going to be caused by that throw-in? Well, you don't because you don't know how they're going to set up. Um, you know, they might have done a better job in the zone, but from my point of view, all I had to do was come from outside of eyesight 
into eyesight. And if the ball ended up in that area, that's where I was going to be. It was so early in the game, four minutes, 36 seconds. Uh, did you think at the time when it hit the back of the net, this was the start of a new era? Or, or did it just feel like every other goal? It just felt like every other goal, if I'm honest. I mean, obviously, it's different because it was against Manchester United. But in terms of, you know, it was just, look, I've managed to score on the first game of the season. So that means that if I don't score for two more games, then I'm still one in three. <laughs> Believe <laughs> that's how it was. <laughs> Trust me. Because, it's like I said, there was a real responsibility on a centre-forward. It's not like now where you have midfield players running, you know, like a Frank Lampard, say, for example, who would make late runs into the box and score 20 goals a season. The centre-forward was the guy who was more or less responsible. Everybody had a centre-forward who they would look at and say, right, well, how much has their centre-forward scored this season? And that was my responsibility. So, mm. of course, I was playing the long game and, and just thinking, right, OK, that's two goals in the on the first day of the season. So, I've got a score in the next three games to stay ahead. When did you realise that it was a goal of significance? Were you in a pub doing a pub quiz and someone asked the question? Or, or did someone ask you for an interview and discuss it with you? Or, or, or is it just something that's crept up on you over time? It's crept up, um, to be quite honest. Obviously, the significance at the time, I was coming off at half-time and one of the guys said, look, that was the first goal. But... Um, you know, I'm quite a shy person in, in, well, I was not so much now, but I remember being away and, and there was a guy came up to me um, in a wine bar in Spain at the end of the season. And he, it was, it was really nice actually. And he said, Oh, you, Brian, didn't you score the first goal? You know, at the time I was thinking um, that he was going to say something awful to me because we used to get a lot of stick like that. You know, people would just come up and, and try and be abusive to you. So I was on my guard and I, I kind of just ignored it. But then I realised that it wasn't being horrible to me. It was just saying, mate, you, you know, you did something significant there. Mm. And and then obviously, you know, I, I, try, I embraced it a lot more after that. People forget you scored another goal that day uh, from the penalty spot. And a mistake by Bruce. This is Alan Cork. And the referee says penalty. Dean... Scores with Consumides. I'd never really took a lot of penalties. I think I took about four or five in all the time. Maybe I should have um, taken a lot more penalties in my time. But no, that that was the... Yeah, I, I think I might have scored the first brace of the, <laughs> the new season. You scored the first of everything, didn't you? I'm, um, I'm struggling now. I'm yeah, just yeah. clutching at straws. <laughs> um, you made your debut in 1985 <clears throat> for Doncaster uh, before yep. moving on to what was at the time a struggling third division, Sheffield United. And you fired them yep. to promotion back to the second and then to the first division. How yeah. much did that journey going through those leagues contribute to you becoming the number nine that you ultimately became? Oh, it was massive. I mean, if, I, if I'm if i honest, when, when I was at Doncaster, you know, the season we got relegated, um, I learned a lot there. I had a great manager in Dave Cusack. You know, he, he gave me my debut. And um, playing in that league and learning the physicality of, of, of the of the game at the time, I think I was nineteen twenty, stood me in good stead. And and when we got relegated, Doncaster offered me a new contract, but it was I think the contract that they offered me was saying that we don't really want you to stay. And and I was I was quite um, bullish and 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 had a, a belief in my ability. And I, I turned down the contract, 
and uh, Sheffield United came in and I knew I could score goals in that division. Uh, you know, I'd scored 10 goals in a struggling team at 19 years of age. So I, I thought, well, I know I can score goals in this division if the right club comes in for me. I know that I'll be able to contribute very well. And to be honest, I had my eye on Sheffield United because I knew they'd come down and I felt that, you know, if I could just go in there and, and kind of not make too many waves at the beginning, it would give me time to settle down and then I could really start coming to the fore. Um, but fortunately for me, it started off really well in pre-season. There was, um, Derek Dooley was the chairman and Derek used to come on all the trips with us to Sweden and so on in, in pre-season. And, and it, I think it was the combination of the players, the warmth from Derek Dooley in particular, who took me under his wing, the man management of Dave Bassett and the staff, uh, Derek French and Jeff Taylor. It just felt like the right thing and the right place to be for me. Dean with a header. 1-0 Sheffield United. Brian Dean in the middle of a scoring streak for the Blades. Sensational form at the moment. It was different in the 80s, wasn't it? I mean, in downtime yeah. was completely different as well, you know. Yeah. The camaraderie <laughs> the was last. different. Yeah. Well, I was going to ask you about that, you know, because what was it like, you know, going on those trips to Sweden and going on oh, those trips right. away, away games, on the coach, old school oh. characters all around you? Was it crate of beer, fish and chips, out on the lash yeah. every other night? Oh. What, what was the deal? Oh, it was, it was brilliant, honestly. That's all I can say. Guys, you're playing... Nowadays, listen, you earn a lot more money than we did, but we had a better time. You know, <laughs> it's no, it, it, it was fantastic. I mean, we, you know, those trips to Sweden were brilliant, you know, for all kinds of reasons. I mean, we, um, the football was good. It wasn't of a standard that was going to cause the problem and it broke us into the season very well. But obviously on an evening, it was, um, it was chaos. The whole kind of social side of it, um, you know, the beer was expensive. So, you know, it was, it was just a great time, um, you know, and, and don't get me wrong. You know, we, we by and large, we, we behaved ourselves, but we were young guys and we were we were in a hotel sometimes and we were, you know, we were locked up doing our pre-season. You know, once we'd done our pre-season, we'd go, off, you know, for walks and so on. And sometimes we'd be down by the bit. It was just fantastic i can't complain about anything that we had then um it, it was just a good time and, and you know it was a great time to be a footballer it meant a lot any other guys will tell you my age group will tell you that when they came into football it was not about money it was about waking up as a 10 year old kid looking at roy of the rovers the back page of roy of the rovers and it was signed there was a there was a, always a photo of the player and it, it was signed please and it was like you're supposed to take that to the player and get it signed as a, I wanted to be that person, you know, and I'm sure if you ask anybody, if you ask Shearer, if you ask Wrighty, Les, Gary Pallister, any of these, they, that's who you wanted to be. It was not about money. It was about, this was a one thing that we wanted to do more than anything. It really was. It was, it was unbelievable. Dean's in there. That's number two. Dean reading Hoyland's header. Beautifully well, and he's elated. Dean can't believe the ball he's in. A striker can 
be seen as a bit of a headline hogger. The spearhead, the focal point of the team, the alpha male in the group. Was that you? Did you feel pressure to be that kind of character? No, not, not at all. I think um, there's different things here. When I went to Sheffield United, nobody had any expectations of me in that the guys kind of took me into the fold. There was a lot, of, a lot of the guys there were older than me, but they were great. They respected me for what I was bringing. There was no expectations. So I, I just saw that opportunity as something that we're a team. And that was the way our Dave Bassett built the whole situation. You know, we were a team. We conceded together. We, we scored together. I have to say that the, the guys in the changing room then were, were fantastic. And there was no ego. There was no alpha male. Um, when I went to Leeds, that was a different situation because... You know, in the first year I was at Leeds, I, I struggled a little bit settling. Um, they played a different type of football. I was used to getting the ball quickly, running at people. You know, I was asked to play more with my back to goal at Leeds and I hated it. At the end of the first season, I had uh, gone home and, I, and I'd, I was having an argument with my brother. And my brother said, listen, he said, what you need to do is you want to take some of your anger out on some of them teammates who aren't giving you the ball as quickly as, you know, you're used to having it, don't come here. I'd been used to just being the first line and I went to Leeds and I tried to fit in and um, I realised that second place is first loser. So when, when I went back in that summer, I decided that it's my rules now. I ain't taking no nonsense from anybody. I'm not going to, you know, feed off anybody's scraps anymore. I'm not going to be the guy who just when nobody else has got a pass, they just bang it into me as as hard as they can. And then I've got to deal with it. I thought, no, I'm not having that nonsense. And and the thing was with that was that when in the first year I was having such a bad time. And I remember one time there was a goalkeeper kicked it out and I brought a ball down from um, about it it was straight from the goalkeeper's kick and I, I killed it dead. And and I remember the crowd sort of like, it was almost like ironic cheers. Oh, blimey, he can do a bit. And those moments sticking in your mind. And I said, I said to myself, I went home that, that summer and I says, right, Brian, nobody anymore is going to have a free ride off my back. When we were at Sheffield United, we, we had a guy who used to come in and we used to do fitness conditioning. There's always a famous story about when we had four points at Christmas and we, we brought in a strength and conditioning guy called Ed Baranowski. Uh, and we, we worked hard. We worked harder than any other club in the country. So we went from having four points at Christmas, finishing about 12th, and we were rolling over teams at the end of that season. When I joined Leeds, I kind of I stopped being me. And in the end, I, I, like I said, I, there was an issue with my brother and I stripped it back and I said, okay, you've got to get back to basics, Brian. And, and that's what I did. So I, I started to go and I went and I, at that time, nobody was doing any extra training. I know people come in and they talk about Arsene Wenger changed the um, culture, uh, nonsense. We were doing that at Sheffield United before anybody else, I'm telling you now, but we were just Sheffield United. You know, we weren't sexy enough for this story, but we were doing fitness, nutrition, all of that kind of stuff. And we needed to do it because we had to get any kind of little percentage uplift. We had to try and find it. We had to be creative. And that's really interesting because I was looking back at a team photo from 1992-93 of uh, Sheffield United, the team photo, and there is a sports psychologist 
in Andrew Kale, yeah. yeah, in the team photo, and also I, I have had the pleasure of a, a bit of company with Chris Wilder, and he he said to me, you know, you underestimate the work that Dave Bassett used to do when he was in his prime. I mean, he was, he was cutting he up was, videotape and all sorts oh, to do analysis listen, before it was even a thing. I'll tell you now, you know, a lot of people take a lot of credit, and 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 Harry over time has taken a bashing because people say, oh, Wimbledon, long ball, Sheffield United, nonsense. That guy, right, is singularly responsible. You know, it's like a it's like a lost art because we started to have a lot of foreign coaches coming in and obviously they were doing it. And I don't know if it was that David decided he was going to take a, a, a different approach, but we were doing things to survive we went away and Andy Kale was there. Andy Kale was a sports psychologist that we brought in. And um, we, were, we were playing, after after we had our dinner on a Friday night, we were playing British Bulldog in a room. It was part of team bonding. It was crazy. <laughs> this is what we talk about when we talk about siege mentality. This is what we talk about when... You so, know, so, so that was something to sort of get you all on the same side and all fighting for yes, the same team. That was a technique, was it? Absolutely. It's it's in the mind. It's the psychology of sport. You know, Harry was using all kinds of techniques to, to make sure that we could get the points that we needed. Dorigo's cross, just behind Whelan, trying to make something of it. Dazelle, in came speed, chance for Dean! Well, he's not the most likely goal scorer for Leeds all afternoon. As the frustration was starting to grow, a priceless goal for Leeds by Brian Dean. You talked briefly about your time at Leeds. It was a huge yeah. price tag for you to go for. What yeah. was the spotlight like? Because it's a it's a bit of a goldfish bowl, isn't it, Leeds? When especially when you're the record signing and and, and the yeah. number nine. There were things that I struggled with. I think the fact that I was from Leeds was um, it was significant for me because the kind of person I am. And, and was at the time very tactile and so on. I, I didn't want to fail. I didn't want to let anybody down. But by not being myself, I was letting myself down. I, I cut myself off. You know, I, I kind of went within myself. What I did was I used to overthink things. So I would sort of like go home and I'd think about training and instead of just enjoying life, you know, and, it, you know, it, it, these are all um, experiences that you have and, you know when players are going through certain things in their career. You know because you've been there yourself and you know how to get over that. And that and that's what I was touching on with the psychology. You've mentioned your brother a couple of times and you said there was a yeah. problem with your brother. I mean, your yeah. brother appears, and I'm, I don't know this, I'm just going from, from what you're saying, to have been a huge influence on your career. Do you think that the frustrations you had when you were at Leeds early on, where you felt as if the weight of the world was on your shoulders and you didn't want to let anybody down, contributed to the, those problems he's still protective of me bless him my dad's gone but my dad said um, to tony make sure you look after that boy that was before he died you know so tony's always there tony's always um, gonna be there we don't always get on you know we have a difference of opinion the closest people that you should have to you is family because as my brother pointed out to me when i fall who's gonna be there to pick me up it's not going to be my agent it's not going to be your friends you know it's going to be family and that's important players nowadays have got to be so careful about the company they keep you know we all have regrets but my brother has played an integral part in my success 
and you know he's a great brother. Now in the 1990s, the idea of Benfica coming calling for an English player um, probably would have been slightly odd, weird. Doesn't didn't happen very often. I mean, it happened to, to yourself and it happened to Scott Minto. But um, yeah, what what were the differences of the role of uh, of the number nine in Portugal compared <clears throat> to the the role that you'd been so accustomed to in in a fledgling Premier League? I remember Graham Souness, who was my manager, said to me. You know, Brian, you know, you're out here because you're different. They don't know how to handle the likes of you. You know, when you're a player, sometimes you don't really understand what that means. You don't know how to take advantage of that because you're still young. You're in the middle of it and, and you're thinking, well, you know, OK. I'm not using it as part of my uh, weaponry or my arsenal. But if perhaps I was a little bit more attentive or astute, perhaps I would have taken that on board and... And realise that when you go on a pitch, don't look at the opposition because they're looking at you and they're thinking, you know, wow, this is a guy I've got to play against today. Because when I went over there, I was huge compared to everybody else. Physically, uh, you're talking about. Physically, yeah. of course. Not, not, not just, not just not in terms anything. of publicity. No, 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 no. no. <laughs> I was a different problem for a lot of the players. And even, the, I remember George Costa. You know, you remember they had the... Um, the centre-back who played for Porto and he played for the national team and he was supposed to be this animal. And I remember when we played Porto and I, and I thought, God, this guy is supposed to be a monster and the guy who played against next to him, he's a monster as well and oh, this is going to be tough. I know that because yeah, I played for England. Uh, one of my games was against Spain and I played against, uh, come on, and in Santander and, and it was me and I came on and played with Alan Shearer and all I can remember about that was the centre-back just kicked lumps out of me for <laughs> as long as I was on there. guy called Lopez and it was a tough game. You know, I think we got beat. Spain were different all. then, right? <laughs> yeah, they, it, was, it was like, it was the era of Goykochea. Your older um, listeners will remember that name because he's the guy who almost ended the career of Diego Maradona. Those guys were very good at the dark arts. I mean, they had black belts in the dark arts, you know. <laughs> when I heard about, oh, I'm going to play against Porto and this guy Costa, and, and, and I, I got on the pitch next to this guy, and this guy didn't even come up to my shoulder. And I thought, wow, you know, these guys must be looking at you thinking, I just want to get through these 90 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> um, what was the overall experience like? How do you rate it? And can you speak Portuguese? I can speak very little Portuguese. Um, the overall experience was fantastic. If I'm honest, going over there, I have to tell people that the Europeans have a different view of, of the English, or they did do then, and that is that we have to earn their respect when we go abroad and play I think what happens over here is they get respect as soon as they sign a contract. And I had to work my butt off to, to get the respect of all the Benfica fans and, and the players. You know, I, I left the, an indelible mark. You know, I, I, I remember I went on holiday to Mexico and there were some Benfica fans there and they were, ah, oh, Brian Dean, Benfica. And, it, and it's like, it, it, was, it was one of those things that, in my career, it helped me to grow up. It, it, you know, I actually wanted to go from Portugal to Spain. I wanted to go on into another league, but 
it, you know, I, I ended up coming back to Middlesbrough. But the overall experience, I would say, fantastic. The way of life. Portuguese people are so warm and friendly. I still keep in touch with um, one of my teammates, Paulo Madeira, a very dear friend of mine. Who's, uh, he played for the national team as well as Benfica. And, you know, they're just warm people. I speak to Nuno Gomez now and again. You know, the, the team over there at the time, I mean, we had Brazilian internationals, um, Amaral, you know, Gra- Graham Sunas is a funny guy in, in, in that, like, I like Graham. My my experience with Graham was if he didn't like it, he didn't like it. And he would make it pretty clear. For some reason, every day when he came in, Amaral was this, Sui didn't fancy him, so he never played, but he'd come in every day with his headphones on, listening to samba music. And I think that used to wind Sui up. <laughs> um, but no, we, we had, you know, Michel Proudhon was a goalkeeper at one, I think he got voted goalkeeper of the tournament in one of the World Cup tournaments. Yeah, yeah, he's still managing. That's right. Um, You know, there were some extremely good players over there who went on and had stellar careers. And and, and I went over there and I had to fit in and I had to to scrap for everything. But it's one of those things that I was at my comfort zone and it was part of me building up my resilience. And, um, you know, sometimes... To, to become better players, and I've always said this, we need to get better, more players playing abroad. And obviously, because of the financial situation, this is the this is the most lucrative league. But until we get players going out there and playing in different leagues, we, we're not going to really get to the heights that we should do for the potential of the players that we've got. You know, the French do it; all their players go abroad. The Spanish do it. Argentinians, Brazilians, they all go back to the national team and bring something a little bit different back into the national team. And and, and that's I think we haven't got that guile and that little bit of street smartness in our country. We've even had to learn how to dive. Unfortunately, it's endemic in our game now. But I mean, I despair when I watch games now and I see people rolling over. It's And even when I went into management, when I went into management, I was like... I don't want any of my players rolling around because it's your identity as a person. Come on, get a grip. Brian Dean opens his account. Leicester 1, Watford 0. After you came back from uh, Portugal, you went to Middlesbrough, then you went to Leicester, and it was another link-up with Harry Bassett and another first for you because you scored the first competitive goal at the Walkers Stadium, which is now the King Power Stadium. It It was another day that also had huge significance for Leicester, wasn't it? There was a lot going on at the time. The, the NTL deal went south and it, it created all kinds of problems. But that was yeah, the TV scored, deal, wasn't it, in the early the TV 2000s? Deal, that's right, yeah. The TV deal went. And you had a lot of players on big contracts that couldn't be supported from the uh, deal in the in what is now the championship. So mm. it was a significant time. But yeah, I scored the first goal, first two goals there as well. So uh, Jordan Stewart will tell you that it was uh, him in the friendly <laughs> against Barcelona, but they don't count. Nobody remembers that. It's got to be the first competitive goal. Um, Absolutely. You, you had a few brief moves at the end of your career. You, yeah. You, what were you doing? Were you looking for new experiences? Were you trying to earn money? Were you trying to keep the competitive juices flowing? What were you doing? That's probably a good way of putting it. I was trying to keep the competitive juices flowing. You know, I was, you know, you get to 30, 31, you want to play as much football as possible. And when I went to West Ham, you know, that was another challenge for me because, 
you know, I think the West Ham fans at the time probably thought, who's this guy coming down? And, you know, I, I scored some goals pretty early in my career there and that helped me to settle as well. That was quite tough, but it was a brilliant experience for me. Here's Bernd Haas, comes inside, cut out again, Albion lose possession. Down this near left-hand side, is Hutchison and Brian Dean has scored! On his debut, West Ham two goals up inside ten minutes! Their fans can be vicious, but... Again, I was pretty. I was pretty fortunate. I think the funny thing was we had some players. I won't name names, but they used to. One, one of them in particular, Go really funny. No, no, no. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna say. It, but he was a left-footed player, and he'd say, "Right, listen. If you win the toss, Christian, can you play sort of like on that side so that you know you're playing as a left footer. You'll be on the chicken run on that side so that when I come on, I won't get any stick." Because <laughs> It was honestly uh, you the, know, the famous old chicken run the at chicken the bowling run, ground. Yeah. Was That's it was right, brutal, yeah. wasn't it? Brutal place, mate. You know what I mean? Yeah, I had a few moves. I was I I, I wanted to play every minute of every game. I went back to Leeds um, when they came out of the Premier League. Um, you know, there was a lot made of the time. There was a headline in the Yorkshire Post, and I'll, I'll never forget this saying that I'd gone there on trial. I'm like, do you understand who I am? I'm going to help you out. And you're turning around and saying that I'm coming on trial. It was nonsense. But, you know, I suppose journalists have to get their headlines in, you know. And and once, But once I was there, I, I thought, there's no way I'm just coming to make the numbers up. And that's what I'm talking about with resilience. You know, I, my personal pride wouldn't let me just sit out my career on the bench. The one mistake I made, I think, was going to... Um, well, just before that, I went to Sunderland and Mick McCarthy, um, a brilliant guy, by the way, what a bloke, honest manager, you know, and, and, and he was all around good guy. I came at transfer deadline. They said, look, Brian, um, I, I want you here because I think you can have a good impact. I think you can be good around the changing room for us. I'm not going to offer you a contract at the end of the season, but I want you to come here and do a job for us. We're going for a promotion. And he, he was very honest with me. And I think as a player, that's all you want from a manager. You just want honesty. And he said that. I walked out at the end of that. I went to Australia. And that was a mistake um, for a number of reasons. Going to um, Australia was the mistake. Why was why was going to Australia the mistake? My preparation was poor. Uh, I didn't do a pre-season. Um, the, the league was in its first year. Um, and to be honest, the standard was was terrible. You know, And I didn't settle. I wasn't fit enough. Um, and, and I just I drew a line under it when I, I remember we were in Perth and we had a league game in, in Wellington in New Zealand and I thought so if you think about that I remember getting on I thought I, I got, I've got friends in Miami it'd be quicker for me to go to Miami for th- two, three days and I've got to go and play a game in Wellington so it was a five hour flight to Sydney and then another four or five hours got my keys to my bedroom and it was a single bed, and I thought, Brian, it's over. It's over. Go home. I thought, I can't do this no more. I was 37 at the time, and I thought, what are you doing here? Do you really love football that much? And I remember at the time, the centre-back was a young guy, and he was quicker. I just thought, the pitch was big. People were knocking the ball into the channels. I couldn't run out. What are you doing, Brian? You've been listening to Upfront with Brian Dean and me, Sam Matterface. 
And if you missed any of the show or just want to catch up on previous episodes from the series, you can listen on the TalkSport app via the Game Day podcast feed. The Premier League All Access podcast is proud to be brought to you by Ladbrokes. The latest odds? We set them. Form guides? We've got them. Expert opinions? We share them. The best fans in the world deserve the best. Be match day ready before the whistle blows with Labrooks. Odds update on Talk Sport with Labrooks. Are you in? Let's go. Play at labrooks.com, 18 plus, be gambleaware.org. T's and C's apply. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt free dream come true, baby. It's me, Geeky Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 